A reading from the letter of Paul to the Ephesians, beginning in the sixth chapter. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his power. Put on the whole armor of God so that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For our struggle is not against the enemies of blood and flesh, but against the rulers, against the wickedness, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God so that you may be able to stand on that evil day and having done everything to endure. Stand therefore and fasten the belt of truth around your waist and put on the breastplate of righteousness. As shoes for your feet, put on whatever will make you ready to proclaim the gospel of peace. With all of these, take the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the flaming arrows of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Pray in the spirit at all times in every prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert and always persevere in supplication for all the saints. Pray also for me, so that when I speak, a message may be given to me to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it boldly, as I must speak. The word of the Lord. Thanks be child. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. I've only seen a few episodes of the show The Americans. Anybody? Fans? No? Okay. I don't know that it's like an amazing show or worth your time, but the premise is really, really good. The premise is that there's this typical American family living in the D.C. suburbs in the 80s. The husband and wife run a small travel agency. They're generally really good neighbors. They're good parents etc., 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 but actually, they're Russian spies intent on the destruction of America and the capitalist West. So they keep odd hours in order to get communication from their true leaders, and they memorize instructions and passwords and safe house locations. From the outside, they seem totally normal, but everything they do is calculated for the victory of their political ideals. In the Gospel according to St. Matthew, at one point, Jesus tells his followers to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. And the reason that Christ gives for this necessity, that they should be wise as serpents and innocent as doves, is because he tells them he is sending them out as sheep among wolves. And as St. Paul finishes his letter to the Ephesian church, he is essentially reminding them of this very thing. It seems to me that cultural Christianity that is currently spasming with bizarre rigor mortis has gotten Christianity so badly wrong at exactly this point. Many of us even have been lulled into believing that being a Christian is a way of building a composite life of prosperity, peace, and pleasure. It's just another thing to add in to our already high-functioning lives. 
God exists for us as a sort of less funny version of Robin Williams' genie in Aladdin. He's powerful, but mostly just in a way to give us what we want. But as our lesson from Ephesians makes clear, to enter into life in Christ is to enter a war. But here, too, we must take care because too often the reactionary strains of Christianity fall into assuming that their war is against other people. In Paul's theology, other people are not the enemy. They are people who have been taken hostage by the enemy, which is the devil and death. It's been said before, in war, you have to remember to shoot the enemy, not the hostage. As I said last week, the church must work hard to speak with clarity and charity to display the life-giving nature of Christ's words and the difficult nature of Christ's words. And I have to say, our current set of culture wars have done very little in displaying either clarity or charity for many sectors of Christianity. In a moment, I'm going to drill down on one particular thing that we're called to here in this Ephesians passage as a way of staying alert in the battle against the demonic forces in the world, but I do want to say a couple of explanatory things first. The first is that if you were to read this text in the original language, you would realize immediately that Paul is not addressing individuals. He's addressing a corporate body. Too often, though, we think of putting on the armor of God as this very personal and individualistic thing, but that's not what's happening here. This is a call for the church together to immerse herself in God and his gospel. And secondly, what I'm choosing to drill down on here in a moment should not be taken as a holistic method for living as a Christian in the world. We have real political duties to perform. We have true moral choices to make that can alleviate the suffering of marginalized people around us. Nothing in what I'm about to say is a call to ignore the magnitude of our duty in the world. Okay? Before we drill down, here's an overview of what Paul is getting at. We have to recognize that there is a war going on. That the struggle, as it turns out, actually is real. We have to recognize who our enemy is, and just as importantly, who our enemy is not. This is not a war against flesh and blood, which is a Pauline way of saying human beings. This is a war against a wily, scheme-filled devil who is the father of lies, filled with pride, and intent on nothing more than your suffering and destruction along with him. We have to recognize that there is a war going on and we have to stand firm in the strength of Christ, putting on the armor of God, which could be translated as armoring yourself with God himself, putting God on as armor. We have to know the truth. We have to be covered with Christ's righteousness. If our day demands a hike in the mountains, we don't wear high heels. We put on the thing that is going to help us achieve what we need to do. We have to put on the shoes that are going to make us ready to proclaim the good news of Christ's kingship and his victory over the tyranny of death and the devil. We have to stay rooted in the faith. 
trusting God's goodness even in the midst of trial. We have to cover ourselves with the victory of Christ in the sign of his cross as we steep ourselves in his word that cuts like a sword. We have to get clear in our minds that the imperial kingship of Christ, the crucified God, is the single truest fact in the universe. As a famous Reformed theologian once said, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ does not cry, Mine. Jesus is king over everything. And despite the current state of rapid flux in our institutional life in the West, and despite the revelation of the horror and rot within parts of the church, despite our own weak knees and sometimes paralyzed wills, we must realize that Christ simply will not stop short. He will not be held back until the entire universe has been restored and reordered, and he is all in all. He won't quit. It is this bare fact that we celebrate in all of our ritual, all of our hymns and prayers in the liturgy. We are training our souls and bodies to bow down before Christ's splendor. We're wetting our appetites to feast at his wedding banquet. It is as if we are having our senses remapped for the new earth, for a time when we will have been caught up completely into the divine life. This can be difficult to remember or even believe as real in our daily lives that our life truly has been hidden with Christ in God. But this is part of what St. Paul is getting at when he tells us to pray in the Spirit at all times and to keep alert and always persevere in our supplications for all the saints. I have become increasingly convinced that much of what passes for Christianity in America has for some time been anemic and weak, unable to stand firm, and largely it is because of our obsession with revival. Because when we say revival, usually what we end up meaning is largely emotional manipulation. We try to work ourselves into this frenzy of spiritual fervor without any real sustenance. I mean, don't, don't miss the connections in the world, right? We, we live in a world where monster energy drinks bring in something like $3.4 billion in revenue. American Christianity has been drinking monster energy drinks, and we're somehow shocked when the sugar crash inevitably comes back upon us over and over and over again. We get really ramped up, and then down we go again. We become obsessed with conferences and powerful music and speakers who make us laugh and cry and feel all the feels. And look, sometimes those kinds of things can shake us out of a lull, and they are absolutely necessary. But here's the reality. For the most part, my preaching is not going to change your life. And it's not going to change this city. We have become addicted to cheap emotionalism and confused it for life in the spirit. And the self-referential nature of our spirituality is such that we pick it up only when it serves us, 
Nowhere is there a hint of the submission and continual conversion that citizens of the crucified king must embody. I've been rereading C.S. Lewis's Screwtape Letters, which if you haven't read it, the conceit of the whole thing is that it's letters from one demon to another. So you have to keep that in mind as you're reading because the capital E enemy is God, right? And so demon uncle Screwtape is writing to his demon nephew, Wormwood, on the painful subject of prayer. Screwtape instructs his nephew, who has been in charge of this new human patient that he is to try to coerce into hell, right? He's got to persuade his human patient to eat or to aim at something entirely spontaneous, inward, informal, and unregularized. What this will actually mean to a beginner, says Uncle Screwtape, will be an effort to produce in himself a vaguely devotional mood in which real concentration of will and intelligence have no part. He goes on. This is Uncle Screwtape. One of their poets, Coleridge, I just, I I have to say, I love how C.S. Lewis can throw shade at other literary uh, people. I mean, it's, nobody does it like him. In the mouth of a demon. One of their poets, Coleridge, has recorded that he did not pray with moving lips and bended knees, but merely composed his spirit to love and indulged a sense of supplication. Says demon Uncle Screwtape, that is exactly the sort of prayer we want. At the very least, these humans can be persuaded that the bodily position makes no difference to their prayers for what they constantly forget and what you, nephew, must always remember. They are animals, and whatever their bodies do affects their souls. He goes on, whenever they are tending to the enemy himself, we are defeated, but there are ways of preventing them from doing so. The simplest is to turn their gaze away from him toward themselves, keep them watching their own minds and trying to produce feelings by the action of their own wills. When they meant to ask him for charity, let them instead start trying to manufacture charitable feelings for themselves and not notice what they are doing. When they say they are praying for forgiveness, let them be trying to feel forgiven. Teach them to estimate the value of each prayer by their success in producing the desired feeling. We can no longer be a people whose prayer life relies on feeling. Martin Thornton, who's another good Anglican, and I use this quote a lot in our um, confirmation classes, and it's, it's pretty jarring. You have to keep in mind also that these are, these are dry British people who have never seen the sun, okay? So just, just remember. Thornton, Thornton put it this way. He said, we must relearn the essential truth that Christian prayer is rather like cleaning a car. When we're lucky enough to have a new one, we wash and polish away with enthusiastic fervor. It is a devotional job. When the novelty wears off, it becomes rather a nuisance and rather a bore, but we can still clean it effectively. And here's the one vital point. There is no difference whatever in the result. It is exactly the same with prayer. 
I realize that for a lot of us, this, this is pretty jarring. Most of us have been taught through most of our church life that feeling it, being authentic, is the primary means of knowing that it's real, that we're not Pharisees. The problem is that if you only pray when you really feel it, I mean, I don't know about you guys, but that's not going to happen too often for me. We have to figure out how to press on in the disciplines so that we can become people who actually have the aroma of Christ in the world. So bringing this back into the context of Paul's letter, we have to understand that there is a war going on. We have to armor ourselves with God himself, and we have to get beyond our own feelings to carry on in this war. We're going to be talking more about this in the coming weeks. And I did this to you a month or two ago, and I'll do it again. This is going to sound like a congregational meeting. Uh, it's not. But for a while now, I've been wanting a smaller space where we can engage the rhythms of morning and evening prayer and midweek Eucharist together as a community. And finding space with a budget like ours, which doesn't exist, is uh, difficult, if not impossible. So I've just been praying about it for a while. And God has answered that prayer. and He's provided us with a chapel space in downtown Portland that we are going to start using, uh, hopefully toward the end of this month. So as I said, in, in a few weeks, we're going to be talking more and more about this schedule. Uh, it's a shared space, but we're getting pretty good at that. Um, we're going to be reframing our community life this fall around the rhythms of regular corporate prayer because I believe that it is in this work of becoming persistent in prayer that the Spirit's illumination shines forth from our midst, making us a city set upon a hill. What Portland really needs is a group of people who have had their imaginations reshaped through consistent exposure over and over and over again to the light and mercy and glory of God through a continual practiced, embodied, corporate life of prayer. This is not an easy, immediate, or sexy solution. Right? We live in a city that wants you to get out and march against everybody else who's marching. This is not going to produce immediate, tangible results. How long does it take for Netflix to load before you start getting impatient? 15 seconds? 20? Two minutes? That's way too long. You've got to turn it off and start over. I'll say that for too long, Christianity in the West has been building the spiritual equivalent of couch cushion tents. They go up quick. They're lots of fun. It feels like you're camping in the living room, but they can be dismantled just as quickly. And what I'm asking of us is to start behaving like we're medieval builders. York Minster Cathedral took 252 years to build, which means that your grandparents could have built their whole lives 
and your parents could have built their whole lives, and you would build your whole life, and you would still never have seen it completed, but you would know that you're building something beyond yourself, something that will last. We haven't gotten too many tourists stopping by my house lately to see my incredible couch cushion tent building skills, but people go to York Minster all the time. To put it another way, I'm asking us to become a community of people like those spies in the Americans. I, I realize dealing with Russian stuff right now is maybe not the best analogy, but just our lives are going to look very similar to the lives of our neighbors, right? F from a distance, we're doing almost the exact same things. But the purpose for which we have been fashioned will cause us to move heavenward. It will actually reshape all of our rhythms, all of our desires, all of the things that we are doing. And it will be difficult work, mostly at the level of personal will. Because this isn't the sort of work that we can merely add on to our already too busy life. Right? Did you already go there in your head? Okay, we're going to start out doing morning and evening prayer and midweek Eucharist. When am I going to find time to do that? If we hope to be built into a spiritual temple, being built up into the Lord, we're going to have to let the Spirit bring his wrecking ball to our pristine schedules, our pristine checkbooks, our perfectly constructed couch cushion tents, and then do the work of building us upon the rock. It's not going to be easy. The world in which we live is so fraught with anxiety. We need to have time away with the Spirit together so that we can know how to go about doing the work that Christ has given us to do in the world. I wanted and had been praying toward this idea um, long before my wife and I got a chance to go to Jerusalem. But when we were there, it really just was driven home for me. Being in a space, a physical space, where people have been praying for thousands of years, there's an electricity in the air. Those of you that have been, you know. It, it literally changes the makeup of the space. I've been in Oregonian my whole life. The changes going on in our city are dramatic. And many of them, frankly, are troubling. But the more that I have tried to figure out what it is that we should be doing as a church, I keep coming back to this one thing. We have to be a people of prayer who have pressed beyond our own enthusiasm. And it's not just for ourselves. There's an entire city of people just losing their minds with anxiety. This is how we will become people of peace. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.